Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Last time we were in the book of Amos, we got about eight verses into chapter 5. But let's not start there. Turn first to the book of Romans, the very first chapter. And the reason that we're doing that is that two weeks ago, we bumped into verse 8, which had to do with Orion and the Pleiades. And we went and looked at the book of Job and made some comparisons to God's control over the star clusters and the seasons. By the time we get to the end of chapter 5, we're going to see God via Amos accusing the Israelites of worshiping Saturn and worshiping their star gods. And so the point that God is making in Amos 5 One of the many points that he's making is that they were worshiping things that were actually under God's dominion. God is greater than the things they were worshiping. They were worshiping the stars. They were worshiping the planets. They were worshiping the heavenly bodies. And God is making his case that he created those things and is in control of those things and is thereby greater than those things but they would abandon the worship of God in order to worship his creation. And when Paul was writing to the Romans, he addressed that very same thing. And that kind of worship of astronomy, of the astronomical bodies and stuff, still goes on to this very day. There are still people who live and die by their horoscope. There are still people who consult astrologers. There are still people who think that the creation has more to say or is more legitimate or more worthy of worship than the creator. And Paul addressed it 2,000 years ago, and it's still a reality to this very day. Here's what Paul had to say about it. Uh, Romans 1, let's start at verse 16. That's a good, very popular verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Then in verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth or hold the truth down in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God or that which can be knowable about God is evident within them. Now, one interpretation or understanding of that phrase is people say, well, then what is knowable about God is in the men, so therefore men are without excuse. But the topic here is really about the heavens, that God created the heavens, and in the heavens he left an imprimatur of himself that is a designation of his righteousness and his wrath to come. 
And so if you were to walk outside and look up at the creation, look at the skies, you can see the handiwork of God. It's kind of like the discussion, the argument, the debate between the theologian and the atheist, the agnostic, where the theologian had a, a very fancy watch. And when the atheist asked him, where did you get that watch? He said, oh, I, I didn't buy it. No man made it. It just suddenly appeared. And the atheist argued with him and said, no, you take me for a fool. That's ridiculous. That, that watch did not just magically appear. And of course, the theologian then said, well, you say that the whole creation, which is a giant clock, you say that that all magically just appeared. Why couldn't this watch just appear? That's the same basic idea. The fact that the universe exists, that the stars in the heavens exist, Men keep worshiping the creation rather than the creator, and yet what can be known of God, what is knowable of God, is written into the stars. And I think that's part of what Amos is getting at, and that's what we looked at last week with Job, that the argument is always that God created the heavens in a way that declare his presence and his justice, his righteousness, and Paul argues that even the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Because these men suppress the truth and they hold it down in unrighteousness. So verse 19, because what is known about God is evident within them. I think that's within the heavens, within the stars, within the universe. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. So if that is saying that what is knowable of God is within men, then from the very creation, what is knowable of God was within men even before there were men. I think if you just let the context flow, he's still saying that the creation is the thing that declares God. And as a consequence, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, what has been created, so that they, the men, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, or of birds, or of four-footed animals, or of crawling creatures, because human beings through history have worshipped every living thing if they don't worship God. And I think it's because worship is an intrinsic character of men. I think it's just kind of built into us that we have the need to worship someone or something. And if we don't know the real and living God, that won't stop us from worshiping. We'll worship crawling things or flying things or stars in the heavens, as we're going to see was Israel's problem. So they've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man or of birds, or four-footed animals, or crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So the result is because they thought wrong, because they worshiped wrong, because they didn't recognize God, even though God has made himself obvious in his creation and his power, his authority, and even his wrath are demonstrated in the fact that he has made all of this, which declares his existence and his righteousness, because they held those truths down and suppressed them in unrighteousness, God turned them over to their own unrighteousness. And as a result, they started to defile their own bodies. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over into the lusts of their heart to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here's the heart of the whole thing. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So they start by suppressing the truth of God's righteousness. Then they end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And then they turn their own bodies over to their own lusts, which results in them worshiping the creature more than the creator. So you can see how these levels of worship are becoming progressively denigrated. As they refuse to worship God, they're going to worship something, and then they worship the creatures or four-footed beasts, and then ultimately they worship themselves. And I think you can find that just about everywhere. Look around, you'll find people who think that they really are the center of everything. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator. The creator is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over two degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. There are people who argue that that's lesbianism. I don't know how else to read it. The women have turned themselves over to degrading passion, and they exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And then he turns to homosexuality, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved or a reprobate mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, which is the contrast to verse 18 where I began reading, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, because what can be known about God includes his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. So his righteousness is on display. His righteousness is irrefutable and inarguable, and yet human beings in their depravity and their suppression of the truth have held down righteousness until verse 29 says that they're now filled with all unrighteousness. But not just that. Paul now gives you a list. It's not good enough that they're unrighteous. Also, wickedness and greed and evil, they're full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, 
unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So that's quite an indictment from Paul, but he's writing, gosh, hundreds of years after Amos is writing to Israel and accusing Israel of the same thing. And I think in everything we read here, as you all were nodding in agreement, we know that this is still the way that human beings are. This is still the way that people are. They are still intrinsically sinful and unrighteous. They suppress righteousness in order to get away with doing their own thing, whatever their own thing is. I made mention when we were over in Gladeville talking about Christ as judge, that there are some things now in our society that are just so blatant, just so obvious. I don't know a constitutional scholar anywhere who has ever argued that the right to abortion can be found somewhere in the Constitution. And in fact, Scalia, who just died, in his dissent, wrote that very thing. He said it's judicial fiction to believe that the right to abortion is in the Constitution. But once we pass that hurdle, now they found homosexual marriage somewhere in the Constitution. What's next? Nevertheless, Paul says, we know what the truth is. People know, they intrinsically know, this can't be right. It is basically against nature, but they're going to argue that, well, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. And since I gave it a different word, that means it's not a person. And, And off people go to do whatever it is they decide they want to do. And they will suppress righteousness. Go to Amos 5. Because this is the very sort of behavior that God drove Israel out of their land for. And yet it's the common way that people are today. And God has before demonstrated his judgment and justice against this sort of behavior when he did it with Israel. And yet now that behavior seems so commonplace that nobody even thinks it's wrong. And in fact, people argue that it's right. There are people out there making quote unquote ethical and moral arguments in favor of killing babies. As I said, we got as far as verse eight last week. We'll read those first eight verses just for quick review so that we build up speed going into verse nine couple things that you need to know to get into this chapter. There's going to be several references to the gates. You need to understand what that has to do with. The gate in a, in a walled city was the place where the leaders of the community, the judges, they would sit in the gate. And if you had a qualm, a problem, an argument with a neighbor, if you had something that needed to be adjudicated, you would take your qualm to the gate because that's where the leaders would sit. But as we've seen throughout the book of Amos, part of the problem in Israel was that the the judges were taking bribes. The judges were not judging fairly and rightly, and they were not judging in favor of the poor because the poor back then and the poor to this very day simply have no power. And so the people who have the money, the wealth, the power will adjudicate in their own favor according to their own biases and not in accord with what is best for the poor. And that was a problem then, and it's still a problem now. 
And the other big theme of this chapter is God is going to say, you're doing your religious stuff, and I hate your religious stuff. And the reason that he is going to reject their religious stuff and not accept their sacrifices or their feasts or new moons, their festivals, all that stuff, which, by the way, are all things that God instituted. These are all practices that God gave to Israel, but they now think that simply by doing those things, by rote through repetition, that they are sort of covering up all the other evil they are doing. And I think this is very instructive because God doesn't accept their sacrifices or their worship because their lives do not comport with his rules, his laws, his behavior. And to this very day, again, there are people who think, I can live any old way, and then if I just cover it up on Sunday, I'm good to go again. The Roman Catholic Church has gone so far as to say that you can come and just confess it. You can do it and then confess it, and then you say some Our Fathers and some Hail Marys, and you're good to go again. That's just wiped right off the slate. And if you know you're really going to have a wild weekend, maybe you can get a few indulgences. I know I'm going to be doing some stuff. So if I can just get the church to indulge my stuff, then I'm, I'm good to go. So that notion of religiously covering up your sin still exists and pervades so much of religion to this very day. And here is God saying, I hate your sacrifices. I want nothing to do with the way that you're coming at me with all your religious practices because your lives are not righteous, are not fair to the poor to the people who have no power. All right, so chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge. In other words, this is a lamentation because Israel is so bad off that he is now going to prophesy a lament to them. O house of Israel, she has fallen, she will not rise again, the virgin of Israel. She lies neglected on her land, there is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one who goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. But do not resort to Bethel. That's the place where the king's house was. You're going to see that in a couple chapters. Amos is even going to talk about that. That's the place where the king's house. And so, therefore, the kings, the leaders in Bethel reject him and reject his prophecy because he's about to prophesy that God is going to kill Jeroboam and end the house of Jeroboam the second. The fact that he would go to Bethel and say that is just such an affront to the king that they throw him out and nobody wants to hear it. And so don't resort to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. This is where they had set up the stones when Israel had entered into the land. Don't go there and worship at your monuments. Don't cross over, which means don't go all the way down through Judah because Beersheba is actually south of Judah, but it's where there were monuments to the forefathers. And so don't go down to Beersheba. Don't go to Gilgal because that will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come to trouble. I told you that's Beth-Avon. It's going to come to emptiness. Seek the Lord that you may live, lest he break forth like a fire, O house of 
Joseph. That language again, Joseph being the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, that's the language that identifies who he's talking to. It's the northern tribe. The northern tribe, the primary tribe of the northern kingdom, the primary tribe is Ephraim, and Ephraim is the youngest son of Joseph. So he will break forth like a fire, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood or into a poison and cast righteousness down to the earth. So God is going to stop them. He's going to stop them severely. He's going to stop them violently. He's going to defend the righteous. And he's going to defend himself against those who turn justice into wormwood or a form of poison. At that point, we had Tom, I believe, read Proverbs 21.3, where God said that he was not going to accept their worship or their sacrifices because he was seeking justice from them. So they have cast righteousness down to the earth. That is his charge against them. Verse 8, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning. This is that same language of the one who is in charge of the creation. I told you last week that the Pleiades and Orion, those star clusters just before morning and just after uh, the sun goes down, signify the time to plant and the time to harvest. It signifies the beginning of spring and the end of fall. This is God saying, I'm in charge of seasons, so much so that I'm even in charge of the heavens. I have constructed the stars in the heavens in such a way that all you have to do is look up at the sky and you can know when the seasons are about to change and when to be ready to plant and when the harvest is coming and when the cold is coming. And I'm in charge of all that. And so at that point, we went and read for a little while out of Job 38, where God makes that argument. I'm in charge of the Pleiades. I'm in charge of Orion. I'm in charge of the seasons. I do all these things. So he who made the Pleiades and Orion, he who changes deep darkness into morning, which we think that's just the sun coming up. And he says, I'm in charge of that. I do that. Because remember, he's the one that could stop the sun in its orbit, and once did. He's also the one who could darken the sun. When Jesus was on the cross, three hours of darkness in midday. Or when the Israelites were in Egypt, three days of darkness. God's in charge of the sun because it's part of his creation. And yet, the vast majority of the history of false worship, including the worship of the Baals, is sun worship. And yet, God is declaring it again. I'm in charge of the sun. I made the sun. The sun serves me, and you're worshiping the thing. You're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. I also darken the day into night. I'm the one who calls for the water of the sea and then pours them out on the surface of the earth. This is a really interesting and very scientific statement for as early as it was written. Because what he's talking about is condensation from the ocean to create cloud formations that then get over the land and pour rain on the land. I don't remember what year of science I learned that. <laughs> but in some point in school, we learned about cloud formation through condensation. Way back here in Amos, God says, I do that. I'm in charge of that. The reason that the water comes up out of the ocean and then forms clouds and then drifts over the land and then water goes on the land so that you can grow stuff and eat, I'm in charge of all that. And yet, people will go out and worship the rain and worship the sun, worship the natural order. 
He who darkens the day into night, he who calls for waters of the sea and then pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. I have a Jewish friend listening online who has corrected me a couple times and said that the W sound in Yahweh should actually be a V sound, which is why when you add the Adonai vowels, it's Jehovah, not Jehovah, so that Yahweh is actually Yahweh. So, okay, so for my Jewish listening friends, Yahweh is his name. And here he is calling himself by his name and saying, that's who does these things. Then he argues again, it is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong. So that destruction comes upon the fortress or the citadel. So now he's taking responsibility for raising up kings and tearing down kingdoms. And he says, and if strong people come and conquer another people, that's me. I'm in charge of all that. I'm in charge of the sun, the moon, the stars. I'm in charge of the Pleiades. I'm in charge of Orion. I'm in charge of day and night and clouds and condensation and rain. And I'm in charge when strong armies conquer other people. I'm still in charge of that. So he's arguing again for absolute sovereignty in whatever happens in his creation. Verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate. Okay, so he's talking about a good judge. When there's a good judge in the gate who's doing righteousness and who is adjudicating in favor of the poor and the downtrodden, the rich, the wealthy, the powerful hate him. They hate him who reproves people in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. This is how far they have fallen. Verse 11, therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and extract a tribute of grain from them, what this is talking about, again, is the wealthy would have larger control of the land, and then the poor would come and work the land, and they would extract a rent from them and expect a piece of the grain while they did nothing. They would just extract the taxes from the people who actually do the work. Does any of this sound contemporary? We have an awful lot of people sitting in Washington who don't actually do anything, don't create anything, don't make anything, but they just extract taxes from the people who actually do and create and make things. Well, this is the way that people have always operated in oppressing the people who don't have so much. So they extract a tribute of grain from them. Meanwhile, they have built houses of well-hewn stone. So they're fine. They're living fine. Everything about them is fine. But they oppress the poor with heavy taxation. And yet, here's God's judgment on them. Though you have these houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, and yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. So again, Amos is arguing in favor of justice for the poor and the, uh, the powerful, the rich, continue to oppress the poor. And Amos is arguing that this is one of the reasons that God has to correct Israel and correct them very, very severely. So it appears that God thinks that behavior 
is actually a very large element in worship and approach or being his people. He has singled Israel out from all the other nations on the earth. He has said, you only have I known of all the people on the earth. And then it was more than just, you're my chosen people. It's you're my chosen people. And now I expect you to act differently. I don't want you to act like the world. I want you to behave differently. I want you to actually be righteous, actually be fair, actually adjudicate in favor of the person who has nothing and has no power. As a result of them not doing that, God is now going to say, your religious good works aren't going to help you. Therefore, verse 13, when it gets like that, when it gets this bad, verse 13, therefore at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent for it's an evil time. That's interesting advice, by the way. Have you ever reached the point where you just say, it's so crazy. It's gotten so bad. And you just reach the point where you want to just shut down. There's nothing I can do. I just want, I just want to be quiet. I just want to wait on God. I just want to... And God says, a prudent person in a time like this, when things are going like this and it's all that bad and it's an evil time, the prudent person just is silent. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. So if you hate evil and love good, how is that demonstrated? By fair adjudication and treating the poor fairly and making sure that you judge righteously. And at any point that you have any kind of authority or any kind of power over somebody else, you make sure that you treat that person with righteousness and fairness so that you are a representative of God in their life as opposed to being a representative of unrighteousness in their life. Or the state. Or the state. You know, I have a, a, a very sweet lady who is a retired bookkeeper and she does my taxes. And she's been doing my taxes for a long time now. Because since I am self-employed and you know, can have potentially so many different deductions and everything, and because I get income from so many separate sources, I reached the point where I could just no longer do it. And uh, trying to do it online just didn't work. Because for some reason, TurboTax doesn't understand the ministry housing allowance. So she's been doing it for a while. So I was with her yesterday, finishing up my taxes for this year. And she was looking over my insurance expenditures because I pay for my own insurance and pay for my own medical expenses and I have a health savings account. And so that all gets really complicated, especially now because of Obamacare and that uh, you have to have insurance and it has to meet certain standards and stuff. And she just out loud said, uh, she said, oh, Obamacare, I just hate it. What a mess it's made. And I said, why? You as an accountant, does it just make your life more difficult? She said, no, it makes people's lives more difficult. She said, I had a man in here yesterday who's a retired man who's living on very little money. He's still working because he can't afford to not work. And he hasn't been able to buy insurance because Obamacare has just priced him out of the market and he can't buy it. And as a consequence, she said, I filled out all the forms. And the IRS electronic forms said that he's going to be charged 800 and something dollars for not having insurance. Mm -hmm. And she said, the reason I hate Obamacare is that it doesn't hurt the rich. It doesn't hurt the people that can afford it. It hurts the poor. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought that was a remarkable insight, especially given what we're reading in Amos right now. It's like, oh, I see the rich, the powerful, and everything can just impose rules and law on people that ultimately hurt the poorest in our society. Okay, I'll, I'll get off that. But vote Republican. That's all I'm saying. Never mind. <laughs> I don't even know now if that'll help. I have no idea. Okay. Don't break into factions. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord. There is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and the professional mourners to lamentation, and in all the vineyards there is wailing, because I shall pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. This is the culmination, the fulfillment of what we read at the end of chapter 4, where God said that, the ultimate judgment was going to be that he himself was going to show up. Chapter 4, verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I shall do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts and who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. And so he's saying, I don't know how to punish you any greater than for me myself to show up and punish you directly. Prepare to meet your God. And so this is what he's describing here, starting in verse 16. And as we're going to see in just a moment, this is the day of the Lord, the ultimate punishment when God breaks into human history and punishes people directly. And we looked at this several weeks ago when we just took one night and looked at the language of the day of the Lord. So God is ultimately going to punish Israel very specifically through the day of the Lord sequence of events. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas. And in all the streets they say, alas, alas, and they will also call the farmer to mourning and the professional mourners to lamentation. And in the vineyards where there's usually happiness and drinking and there in the vineyards, there's wailing because I shall pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like when a man flees from a lion and a bear catches him. Or he goes home, apparently after escaping the bear or the lion. He goes home. He leans his hand on the wall. You can see he's tired. He says, and he puts his hand against the wall, and there just happens to be a snake waiting on the wall to bite him. In other words, you're not escaping this. If you get away from the bear, the lion's getting you. If you get away from both, the snake's biting you. And when the day of the Lord breaks out, you're not getting away from it. Verse 20, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings... 
and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at your peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. So apparently God is not under any obligation to accept our religious worship, our religious demonstrations toward him if they're not coming from the right place, if they're not coming from a righteous heart, if they're not coming from a life that, that has been completely converted and transformed by the Spirit of God, then no amount of religious falderall can make up for your lack of righteous living. Got that? Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Verse 24, one of the most beautiful verses in all of the book of Amos. But let justice roll down like waters. Not little bits of justice. Not little droplets of justice. He wants justice in Israel to roll out like rivers and streams of justice. And righteousness... Let it roll down like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years? O house of Israel, here's his point there. He's saying, for 40 years, once I brought you out of Egypt, even though I took Moses to Mount Sinai and I gave you all the regulations and I told you how to do all the sacrifices and I laid all that out, for the 40 years that you were in the wilderness, I did not require you to kill animals or bring bullocks or do any of those sacrifices. So the point that he's making is they're not an absolute necessity. They're something that God allowed, that God prescribed in order for the relationship between him and his people to be consistent and to be demonstrated and so that they got in the habit of regularly recognizing that God was in their midst and that they had to worship him and that they had to worship him through sacrifice and their grain offerings and their wines and their drink offerings so that it was really a part of the culture. It was part of their everyday life. They had to keep up with that. But the point is that they're not an absolute necessity. God, to be God, has no needs. It's not like he was in heaven going, I got to get a bull. Somebody kill a bull. You know, somebody bring me an offering. Somebody, I got to have some money. God owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. He doesn't need those things. Instead, he prescribed those things as a reminder of God in, in the presence of his people and they suppressed that righteousness, held that down, and went about worshiping golden calves. And in a moment, he's going to make it even worse. And he's going to say, you worship, the word is Saturn, and you carry around altars to your Baals. In fact, he's going to use the word to your Molechs, the gods of Canaan, the Canaanite gods where you would sacrifice and burn children. Or just abort them. Any, well, anyways, Listen to this, verse 26. And you also carried along, now I want to know what some of your other translations say. The NASB went for the, the original wording and went with, you carried along your Sukuth. Sukuth means Saturn. Kaiwan is also an ancient word for Saturn. What do some of your other translations say? You've got Sukuth as well? Yep. Okay. So you carried along Sukuth, your king. That's Saturn, your king. And Kayun, your images. One of the translations of that is your star gods or your Molex. 
And so you carried around your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourself. That's the same thing that Paul said to the Romans. You're so busy worshiping the creation that you looked up at the stars and decided to worship that. And then you made images of it and altars to it and horoscopes from it. And you end up paying attention to and living your life in accordance with and worshiping the creation and the stars and the planets and the Saturns and the, which has so permeated our culture that we still have a weekend day that is named after Saturn. It's where Saturday comes from. And as far as the Molex and the Bales, the next day on the weekend is the day of the sun. We're still recognizing sun worship to this very day in the days of the week. And then, of course, you've got Moon Day and Tammuz Day and Woden's Day and Thor's Day and Freya's Day. All of the days of the week are named after gods. Now, granted, most people who say those things and, and call the days of the week by those names, they don't know the etymology of the words. They don't know where it came from. But my point is that's how deeply it has infiltrated our culture. So this is something that has been around ever since Israel, ever since the Canaanites, ever since foreign worship and foreign gods and the Molechs and the star gods. And Israel, rather than worship God, the only nation that had been selected out by God, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, that people group was supposed to be different, and yet they act like and look like the world in the way that they worship, in the way that they worship the creation rather than the creature, and in the way that they suppress the righteous and don't give to the poor, don't support the poor, don't adjudicate in favor of the poor, verse 27, and therefore... I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. By the way, one more translation. Those, those words, Sukkoth and Kiron, or Kiyun, can also mean a shrine and a pedestal. But it's clear who they are shrines and pedestals to. They're to the Molex, they're to Saturn, they're to the star gods. Turn to the book of Acts, because in Acts 7... Stephen, as he's going to be stoned, recites the history of Israel for the leaders of Israel in order to argue that Jesus is the culmination of the history of Israel. And in the midst of that, he talks about this very thing, that the Israelites, when they left Egypt, brought with them their star gods and their, their foreign gods. Here, I'll, I'll show you. Turn to Acts 7. We won't read the whole thing, but this, this is an amazing sermon on Stephen's part. Let's start in verse 36. Well, we can't start in verse 36. Okay, we're going to start at verse 37. We're actually going to start at verse 37. I'm going to force myself to do that, which hurts. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Because ultimately he's going to preach Christ in this sermon. And so he is saying to the people who are sitting in the seat of Moses, he is telling them, this is the same Moses who said that there was yet another prophet coming. And Jesus of Nazareth is that prophet. So it shouldn't be any surprise to you that the Messiah has come and that he is Jesus, because Moses said so. 
This is the one, verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. So now he's talking about Mount Sinai and God giving him the Ten Commandments and the oracles of the law that were passed on to Israel. So far, everything he has said up till verse 39, by the way, he has told them the accurate history of Israel. But he's also going to tell them about their rebellion. And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. But they repudiated him in their hearts and they turned back to Egypt. How often during the 40 years did Moses have to deal with them saying, oh man, it was pretty good in Egypt. (laughs) Remember the leeks and onions? Remember the food? Or or when they ran out of water. You brought us out here into the wilderness to die of thirst. Right, that was God's plan. You caught me. That was it. When I got together with him up on Sinai, -uh. you know, we made our plan and we're going to bring you out here and kill you. And so, of course, God gives them water from a rock, demonstrating that he is for them. And yet, they rejected Moses. They reject God-ordained leadership. So they say, verse 40, they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what happened to him. That's quoting right out of the book of Exodus as they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, he was up there 40 days and 40 nights. It only took 40 days for them to go, oh, you're the one that delivered us out of Egypt. Oh, well, you're gone now. So they go to Aaron, his brother, and say, make us a god. We need a god to worship. Which, remember, coming out of Egypt, which had a huge pantheon of gods, it's sort of understandable. These people have been in Egypt for 400 years. It's been enculturated into them that there are just gods for everything. There's gods for lice and gods for frogs and god for the sun, Ra. And Pharaoh himself is a god. There's just gods for everything. So Moses, who was our leader, he's gone. He's up on the mountain. We don't know what's become of him. And so make us a god. That's what we need. And then we'll follow that. So they said, make for us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what happened to him. And at that time, they made a calf and they brought a sacrifice to the idol. And they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That's the chief problem with an idol. It can't walk. It can't talk. It can't think. In order for it to go anywhere, people have to pick it up and move it. It has no capability of doing anything on its own, and yet people in raw insanity will worship the things they made. Verse 42, but God turned away and delivered them up to serve, look at the next phrase, the host of heaven, because that is what they wanted to worship. They want to worship the planets. They want to worship the stars. They want to worship the astrological stuff. And so God turned them over, just like Paul writes about in Romans 1, that he turned them over to their reprobate mind because they turned against the righteousness of God, even though the heavens declare God's righteousness. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Molech. 
It's the exact same thing that we were just reading in Amos. You also took along the altar, the tabernacle, the worship of Molech, and the star of the god Ramphi, the images which you made to worship them. And I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Well, this is the same thing that we read in the book of Amos when God accused them finally and said, because you've done this and because you're worshiping the whole creation rather than me, I'm going to deliver you out of your land. I'm going to take you out beyond Damascus. So he takes them into the Assyrian captivity. So you also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the god Ramphah and images which you made to worship them, so I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before their fathers until the time of David. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, and then he quotes, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made everything? So what are you going to make for me? What you make me a bed, going to build me some furniture, make me a house. I made everything. So verse 51, Stephen turns on them and says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, and you're doing just as your father did. And with that statement, Stephen did what I did at the beginning of this message. And I said, you know, people today are the same as they were in Paul's time, the same as they were when Israel rebelled, because humans are humans, people are people. This is our nature. This is what we're like. We're rebellious, and we want to worship anything that is not God, especially if the worship of God requires that we walk righteously, that we change our behavior. And because our flesh fights against that and wars against that, we say, well, then I, I won't have this man to rule over me. I won't do things God's way. I'll do things my way. But God will only take that for so long, and then he's going to mete out appropriate punishment so bad that it'll be like a time that never was or ever would be again, so bad that God would say, why would you desire this? It's going to be terrible darkness. It's going to be a terrible time, this day of the Lord. But that's what it's going to take for God to once and for all correct the behavior of human beings. Which one of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And they were so happy to hear this that they said, thank you, Stephen, <laughs> for showing us the error of our ways. Had you not told us, we would have been unaware. Verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. 
But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be the apostle Paul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So what have we learned here tonight? I I hope that what you've seen is consistently, whether Romans, whether Stephen, whether Amos, whether reaching all the way back to the Exodus, whether reaching back to Egypt, human beings, even those people that God has chosen, we still fight against our flesh and our ego and our need to worship something. And far too often, our need to worship includes worshiping ourselves, worshiping what we prefer, worshiping what we like. Instead of worshiping the only being in the universe who actually deserves worship. There's only one righteous one. There's only one holy one. There's only one who actually deserves our worship, our humility before him, our sacrifice to him, and whatever it takes in this lifetime, whatever you got to give up in this lifetime, whatever you got to go through or suffer in this lifetime for his glory then that's appropriate. That's what's right. That's what Paul calls your reasonable service. And yet we struggle against that because we want our own way. We want people, not only do we want to worship other people, we want people to worship us. We want to make ourselves important. And uh, that is a problem that has been pervasive in human beings since the start, since the fall. But if we've seen anything consistently, it's that God absolutely rejects that kind of behavior and is willing to pour out punishment, took Israel out of their land, and is ultimately going to bring about the day of the Lord because of that kind of behavior. That ought to be a real sober warning to all of us. And it ought to make you say, thank God for Christ. Because knowing that God is willing to punish people that dramatically, that severely, and that eternally, the fact that we are passed out from that judgment because of the finished work of Christ is just such, such good news. Uh, If you know the God of the Bible and you know what he's like and you know that he's willing to mete out judgment, then you will appreciate all the more the Savior who decided you would not be punished because he would do it in your place. And that is the essence of the Christian gospel. Yeah? Well, then we're done here. So I didn't keep you too terribly long. We did all right. I had a passage in Isaiah we could have gone. I had a chapter in Isaiah we could have gone and read. The chapter in Isaiah we were going to look at was going to demonstrate that God promised to restore Israel and that he was going to take them through the day of the Lord in order to accomplish it, just to show you yet again that that is the consistent story and reasoning of the Bible. But we'll hold that for another night. And we'll get to it at some point. All right? All right. Uh, For the folks on the internet and for the folks in the room, God willing and everything falling into place, I plan to go see my mom next week because it's been too long that I've been here. Last night at the men's meeting, Tom volunteered to cover next week. And so you all will still be here. Tom will bring a message next week. And I will uh, 
hopefully be down in Tuscaloosa. That's the plan. And then I'll be back in two weeks, and we'll continue on in Amos. And we'll see how the people there in Bethel rejected this message utterly and completely, because that's what humans are like. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.